Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Extra, extra, read all about it. Jack the Ripper baffles Scotland Yard. Three things made the Whitechapel murders a media sensation overnight. Two murders back to back, an ensuing panic, and a letter which gave this mysterious blood-soaked slayer a name. Jack the Ripper. dubbed the Soho murders, with a third woman found strangled. Soho had become a byword for terror, with its victims so globally famous, only their nicknames were needed. Fifi, Marie, and now Leia. Syndicated worldwide on the 13th of September 1936, every week, was one of many articles that fueled the flames of panic and mystery. It read, Like Jack the Ripper, this shadowy slayer of the girls of London's dim byways strikes with an insane but deadly cunning, leaving no clues to the famous man-catchers. Of those who fell prey to him, All were women, and all of the dubious class. Jack the Ripper threw such a shiver of fear over Whitechapel that women were afraid to go out at night. The same is true today of the women in Soho. With no witnesses, no clues and no concrete evidence to convict separate suspects to these identical murders, let alone a serial strangler who stalked Soho's seedy streets. This mystery would spawn a myth, and with a third murder fueling a panic, the press would give him a name, the Soho Strangler. Unlike the others, the murder of Dutch Leia would mark a shift in the killer's motive. But by making this man into a monster, once again, the victim would be forgotten.
Leia's life was a fractured, chaotic mess. When asked, her own mother could not remember the date of her own child's birth. Just that she was born in 1912 at East Ham Infirmary in East London. Like so many women, Constance May Hind, as her birth certificate states, had many names for many legitimate and illegitimate reasons. With three different spellings of her surname, a married name, and combined with several first names, Constance, May, and even Leia, she had eight known aliases. Lacking a solid role model, her early life was devoid of stability and love, as Leia was bounced like a bag of dirt. Between her mother Kathleen, an alcoholic fraudster who spent much of her upbringing behind bars, her father, Gordon Bodley, a minor who was neither there at her birth nor much beyond. And when not being raised by her exacerbated grandmother, Sarah Ann, who could do nothing for her, Leia was placed into care, far from her home of London. First at St Faith's House of Mercy, a convent at Lostwell in Cornwall, and later at the Devon House of Mercy, a children's home in Bovey Tracy. Age 14, being legally entitled to flee the state's care, this broken girl from a fractured family, left with no money, no plan, and unsurprisingly, her mother would state she was unable to ever live alone. Between 1926 and 1930, her late teenage years, there is a gap in her past. Some say that she trained as a shorthand typist and then became a waitress. But with Leia Hines receiving the first of eight convictions for soliciting age 18, by the time of her death, she had been a Soho prostitute for at least six years. Her adult life was no better, as every aspect of her existence was brief and transient. Like French Fifi, who it is unknown if she ever knew, as her name was never mentioned in the case file of her murder. Dutch Leia, as she was called, a moniker giving this Londoner an air of the exotic, was well known and well liked amongst her fellow sex workers, being chatty pleasant and supportive. As a creature of habit, she worked from 9pm till 2am. She picked up punters behind the Palace Theatre, just south of Old Compton Street and on the corner of Romilly Street and Greek Street. And she kept close ties to her trusted associates, Leia Cohen, Ruby Walker and Lily Joyce, the last people to see her alive. Like many prostitutes, her clients were either faceless strangers or nameless regulars. Her arrests were as common as the violence she endured, none of which led to convictions. She charged a flat rate. She rarely haggled over a fee. She had no issues with getting naked. 
and as many men refused to use the thick rubber condoms as supplied by Sidney Bloom, they could pay her for unprotected sex, as their semen would be soaked up by the thick wads of cotton wool she regularly inserted into her vagina. In the police report, she is described as a common, low type of prostitute. There was nothing about her which stood out. Being just a small, plain, and unremarkable woman, struggling to get by in a life which had dealt her a dirty hand. In short, she was no more likely to be murdered than anyone else. Just like Fifi and Marie. Leia's mother would state, she always lived with some man. I don't mean that she lived with a man who kept her, but a ponce. Like many aspects of her life, her lack of steady lover may seem scandalous to 1930s morals. But living in an era where a single woman was seen as sinful, and penalized to the point where it was better to live with a man, whether she loved him or not, like Marie Cotton. Her happiness was never considered. In 1930, around the time of her first conviction, she lived on Whitfield Street in Fitzrovia with Jim Rich, a black music hall artiste who performed in the West End as well as touring the UK. By all accounts, they got on well and they never quarreled. But after two years, the couple split. In 1931, Leia met Robert Smith at a dance on nearby Newport Street, with him always believing that she was a waitress. By the end of the year, they had a child. I think it was a boy, her mother would state. But unwilling or unable to care for him, he was adopted, but I don't know by whom. On the 29th of June, 1933, Robert Thomas Smith and Constance May Hind married at the Strand Registry Office under the aliases of Robert Thomas Armstrong and May Constance Hind. But by August 1934, after just one year's marriage, she wrote and told me she was leaving with no reason. In December 1935, she lived with an Italian known only as Alf above G's Fish Shop at 65 High Street in Bloomsbury. By January 1936, she lived with a Frenchman using the alias of George Day at 40 Greek Street in Soho. And by February 1936, she lived on New Compton Street with William Billy Sullivan until his arrest later that month for theft and assault. Following her murder, the police wouldn't seek a serial strangler whose sadistic spree had slain another sex worker, or a sensational monster whose very name 
made worldwide headlines. As once again, their suspect was the most obvious one. Like one of her criminal lovers, who leeched off her earnings. Stanley Gordon King was born on the 29th of July 1912 in Aldershot. With his father having died when he was just a toddler, he supported his mother as a minor, but in 1931, aged 19, he came to London to work various jobs as a hall boy, a footman, a waiter, an MC at Max Dance Hall, and finally as a street magician. Under the stage name of Rex Gordon, 24-year-old Stanley performed from mid-afternoon until late into the night. On every tourist street and seedy night spot, always struggling to earn enough to pay his way. Being small and unimposing, he was an unlikely suspect to strangle his lover with his bare hands. But as Leia wasn't overpowered with brute force, her ligature strangulation was more likely to come from a man with nimble fingers, a swift sleight of hand, and an encyclopedic knowledge of ropes, binds, and knots. Dressed in black, a color on which blood is hard to see, taken into evidence from the crime scene was his magic bag. A conjurer's kit which contained everything needed to pull off the ultimate deception, like cloths, ropes, and lockpicks. Interviewed about the murder weapon found in his own flat, Stanley would state, I had about three and a half yards of electrical flex. I saw it nine weeks ago. The piece of wire shown to me is not my property. I have never seen it before. Like the others, Stanley had criminal convictions, but they were only slight. Under the aliases of Arthur King and Archibald King, in February 1935, he was charged but not found guilty of stealing a car. And in June 1935, he pleaded guilty to insulting behavior and a breach of the peace by fighting in the street. Stanley hardly seemed like a maniac, the kind of crazed killer who would unleash such horrific levels of violence against Leia. And yet, if they were connected, make the murders of Fifi and Marie look like an accident and a suicide. But then again, everybody has secrets. Everyone tells lies. Everyone has limits. And maybe the reason her crime scene looked so similar and yet different was that Leia's murder was personal. On an unspecified date in April 1936, 
In the Caprice Club at 59 Old Compton Street, Stanley met Leia. Within the week, they'd moved in together. But their affair was born as much out of love as it was out of lies. Stanley would state, she said her parents were German. She said her name was Leia Heinz. And hiding the fact that she was still married and had a child. Her biggest lie was how she earned her money. On the 24th of April 1936, they moved into two rooms on the first floor of number one Little Portney Street, just off Old Compton Street. An area riddled with prostitutes, pimps and brothels. After three days, she told him the truth. She said she was going out and meeting men. I said, you're not bringing men here, are you? She said, yes. She promised me that she would not bring any more men back to the place while we were there. Whether Stanley was oblivious, an idiot, or a liar is unknown, as there is no denying what Leia did for work. She had prior convictions for soliciting. Everyone on the street knew that she was a prostitute. She worked from 9pm till 3am. Her handbag was full of condoms. She picked up men just one street away and brought them back to their flat, where often Stanley would find their coats or hats left behind. Whether this was an alibi or ignorance, he also claimed that Leia had the only key to the door and that if he wanted access to his own flat between her working hours, he had to wait for her to throw the key from the window or sit in a cafe until she came back to the flat. On Monday the 4th of May 1936, Five days before her murder, Leia and Stanley moved into a new lodging at 66 Old Compton Street. A few doors down from their old flat, deeper into the heart of Soho's sex trade, and it was rented off a landlord who knew that she was a prostitute, having previously tried to evict her for non-payment. 66 Old Compton Street was unnervingly similar to 3 to 4 Archer Street and 47 Lexington Street. Set on a bustling thoroughfare, which thronged day and night to a cacophony of life. Amidst the hum of pubs and clubs, market stalls and small trades, gambling dens and secret brothels. Off Shaftesbury Avenue or Charing Cross Road, a stranger could easily enter this street, unseen and unheard and then vanish. As a very similar, flat-fronted, four-story building, it was yet another almost perfect murder location. With a provisions shop called Fratelli on the ground floor, the lodgings above were only accessible by a street door, often left unlocked and open until the tradespeople had gone home. Described as dilapidated, 
its smattering of tenants kept themselves to themselves and rarely saw one another. In the basement lived a bookmaker and a variety artist, who were rarely in before midnight. On the first floor, Shaw the seamstress was usually gone by early evening. The third floor was unoccupied, and on the second floor lived its newest tenants, Stanley a magician, and Leia a supposed waitress. For a prostitute, the dark unlit stairs gave her slew of faceless punters the privacy to sneak in, get sex, and then vanish like a gust of wind amidst an oblivious crowd. It was discreet, but it was also a place where tears fell unseen, cries were swallowed whole, and a scream of death would be lost amidst life. Their room was small and basic, a double bed, a dresser, a wardrobe, the lights lit by a gas meter, and several odds and sods left behind by a lazy landlord, including one of the weapons used to murder. Just like the others, Leia's final days and hours alive are unremarkable. Sunday the 3rd of May, Leia met Kathleen, her mother, for the very last time. She told me she was living with a Kundra. She said he was kind to her. She seemed happy and did not complain of being afraid of any person. Of those who knew Leia well, she never made any reference to being harassed, bullied or blackmailed. She'd recently been assaulted by a punter, but no more than usual. We don't know if she had a pimp, if Stanley was her ponce, or if her landlord was a flat farmer, part of a criminal gang who rented out rooms to sex workers at inflated prices and took a cut of their earnings. And she never spoke of white slavers, dope peddlers, sinister stalkers, or a violent Jew called Mr. Cohen. Monday the 4th of May. Stanley and Leia moved their belongings into 66 Old Compton Street, including his magic bag. Knowing her past, Stanley would later claim he had implored her, will you promise not to bring anyone here? Meaning men, she said yes. As usual, they ate dinner together. I left her about 11pm, Stanley would state. I arrived home at 3.30am and found her dressed and waiting. Tuesday the 5th of May. Of that night, Stanley would state, That evening I was at Shea Bobby's club until 1.15am. Back home, she was waiting up for me. I asked if she would give me a key to the street door. She said, I need the key. If you want one, you must get one cut. I became suspicious and thought she was bringing men back to the room. They later made up with each other 
and stayed in bed till 3 p.m. Wednesday the 6th of May. Having performed at the club, Stanley arrived home a few hours earlier than usual. Although it is unknown whether this was due to business being light or his need to catch her out. With supposedly no key, I arrived at 12.30am. I whispered up. She threw the keys out of the window. I let myself in and found her waiting. Of course, the only witnesses who can confirm this are Stanley and Leia. Thursday the 7th of May. Having ate a late supper, I left her at 11pm by Tottenham Court Road Police Station. I expected her to go home. Having left Shea Bobby's at 3.30am, I arrived at 3.45am and whistled up as usual. I received no reply. And after walking around, I returned to the address at 4am and noticed she was looking out of the window into Orcompton Street. She was fully dressed and wearing a hat. I said to her, where have you been all this time? She replied, are you trying to catch me? Stanley would later state that she had been to the Caprice Club, a place he had forbidden her to return to. She said, I've been out of someone's way for a couple of hours. She went to the dressing table and took out a seaman's discharge book. The seaman was never identified. His discharge book was never found. And according to Stanley, Leia never stated why it was there. Friday the 8th of May was Leia's last day alive. Stanley would state, I woke up at 11am and noticed a blue raincoat on top of the wardrobe. I asked her about it. She said, it's always been there. I knew this was wrong and I told her so. She said, oh, well, the man who was here last night, it belongs to him. I said, he must have been in a hurry. It was three o'clock when I left the room. And according to him, I asked her if she wanted to meet me for supper. She said, no, I'll see you tonight. She asked me to be home, definitely at 2 a.m. But in Stanley's own words, that was the last time I saw her alive. That night, there were several reliable sightings of Leia. Leia Cohen, a fellow prostitute and her old flatmate, saw her at 10.50pm on Old Compton Street, 
and stated, She was alone. When I left, she was dressed in a small dark hat, a fawn coat and a blue spotted frock. At 11.30pm, Ruby Walker saw her at the corner of Charing Cross Road, talking to Ginger Joan. She said, I haven't been off all night, meaning she hadn't had a punter, and there was no money coming in. The last confirmed sightings of Leia were at 12.30am. The first was by Emilio Plantino, a hall porter at the London Casino, who saw Leia walking east on the south side of Old Compton Street with a man. And just minutes later, Nellie Few, a local prostitute who had known Leia for six years, saw her enter the street door at 65 Old Compton Street with a man matching the description. With no one left in the building, except for the sleeping lodgers in the basement. What happened next was only witnessed by Leia and her killer. In comparison, Stanley's sightings are less accurate and cannot be verified by others. When questioned by the police, he would state, I went to Shea Bobby's, one street east on Charing Cross Road, and I stayed there until 3.30am. Even though, according to him, Leia had asked him to be home definitely at 2am. At 4am, with the street door locked, I whistled up but got no reply. Stanley later stated, I went to Jack's snack bar on Charing Cross Road and had a cup of coffee. Although the owner could never confirm this. Returning at 5am, he rang the bell, which was unheard by any other lodger. I again returned to the address at about 6am. But again, no reply. Seemingly unconcerned, he went to a cafe at the High Street in Bloomsbury, even though one was open immediately opposite. And at 6.30am, he told a passing labourer called James Adams of his issue. And after a little breakfast, this convenient witness agreed to help him. At 8.45am, with a provision shop on the ground floor opening up. Stanley got a second witness, Mr. Fratelli, to unlock the street door. And hearing Leia's puppy whining inside their flat, he got James to break down the door. Discovering her body, Stanley ran to the junction of Great Windmill Street and Shaftesbury Avenue and reported to P.C. Davidson. Oh, Constable, will you come along? I think my girl has been murdered. Stanley King was said to be visibly shaken and upset. 
The crime scene was unnervingly similar to the two previous killings by the Soho Strangler. Inside, there was no state of disorder. The drawers were not ransacked, and except for Leia's black handbag, which had been left open on the mantelpiece, a robbery could neither be proved nor disproved. Again, Leia hadn't feared a killer. As lying obliquely on the bed, with her stockings neatly rolled down to her ankles, her knickers removed, her legs widely parted, and her cotton dress pulled up to her waist, leaving her pubis exposed. She had prepared herself for the purposes of sexual intercourse. Only once again, there were no signs of any sexual assault, as her undressing was of her own volition. Again, the killer had fashioned a found item as a piece of black flex was tied around her neck. Only it wasn't the strangulation which would take her life, as with the scene described as the work of a maniac, his usual calmness cast aside, and having grasped a second, much deadlier weapon, he had unleashed an unparalleled fit of violence and anger upon her, as if Leia's death was personal. With Dr. Charles Burney and Home Office pathologist Sir Bernard Spilsbury jointly confirming that she had died between 12am and 4am, they both took a unanimous opinion. This was a murder. The police's prime suspect was Stanley King, a man with a method, a motive and a very tenuous alibi. But was he her killer? Or with two strikingly similar unsolved murders across neighboring streets over a few months and with a third heading that way? Once again, had the police collared a very convenient scapegoat rather than face the unthinkable that the Soho Strangler was stalking their streets? Part 6 of 10 of The Soho Strangler continues next week. <laughs> By the time Divisional Detective Inspector Burt arrived at 66 Old Compton Street, constables were holding back a gaggle of eager gawpers, as reporters feverishly quoted any pleb who said they had seen or heard something sinister. As some reporters even snuck into the Swiss hotel opposite to try and spy the corpse through the second floor window. Six months earlier, a dead Soho prostitute barely filled a few lines. But now the murders were front-page news, in many local, national, and by the next day, even international papers, as once again, Soho became infamous as a den of sex, drugs, and death. 
crime scene was eerily reminiscent. But as with the others, it was assessed methodically. Again, there were no signs of a prior break-in. As both sash windows were shut, the neighbouring flats were inaccessible, with the only tenants being two floors below who had slept soundly until the arrival of the police. And the doors to the flat and the street had been locked by whoever had taken her key. Inside, the room was dimly lit. As the sunlight pierced the partially open curtains, But again, with the gas lights set to on and the shilling expired, only in death was the room plunged into near darkness. This bed-sitting room was small, comprising of a wardrobe and a dresser which hadn't been ransacked, a settee on which the victim's coat still lay. Under the bed sat three half-full untouched suitcases as the tenants had only just moved in and on the mantelpiece an open handbag gave the illusion of a robbery Leia's body lay diagonally across the bed having prepared herself for sex with a punter she was wearing shoes with her stockings neatly rolled down to the ankles and her blue-spotted dress rocked up to her waist, as she lay with her legs widely spread. Under the wardrobe, a pair of ladies' knickers were found. They were wet and dirty, although who removed them and when is uncertain. As before, With no evidence of natural death, nor obvious sexual assault. Although the cotton wool balls inside a vagina were soiled and foul-smelling, no recent sexual intercourse had taken place. Either trusting her assailant, or never sensing any threat, she had died in the position her injuries were inflicted. As her body had barely moved during the assault, and there were no defensive wounds. Her injuries showed a logical order, as if inflicted by someone who could kill with both speed and silence. A large bruise to her lower left jaw may have rendered her semi-conscious. Abrasions to the neck and a fractured larynx suggested that the throat had been gripped by an assailant's hand. But as if he lacked the strength to finish it, again he grabbed a ligature. Not a stocking, but a black electrical flex, wound around her neck, looped and held, as he slowly throttled her, staring at her terrified eyes. Barely breathing, and with her left pupil blown, Flemon vomit in the airway confirmed she was still alive when he strangled her. Although a mystery remains, why he did not it to ensure her death. 
Was this a mistake? Had he developed a sadistic streak? Or was her death personal? Lying on a pink bedsheet, as if to hide from himself the horrors he would unleash, it was pulled over her head, covering her face. And with her nose and mouth peeping through the rip, he grabbed a one kilo flat iron from the dresser, raised it high, and brought it hard down upon her face and her head. The skull was broken into depressed fragments. The fractures extended to the base of the skull and to the roofs of the ocular orbits, and the exposed brain matter was deeply lacerated and pulped. With blood in her airways, she was still alive as her head was caved in. Pear-drop-shaped blood spatter had spread across the walls, the floor, the ceiling and the door. And the mattress was so saturated, blood had penetrated through the bed, which had oozed through the bedclothes and onto the suitcases below. Constance Mayhind, alias Dutch Leia, had died between 12.30am and 3am. With no witnesses, no clues to her killer's identity, the electrical flex of no known origin or owner, and fingerprints found which matched Leia, Stanley, the landlord, the last tenants, and innumerable unidentified clients. Dr. Charles Burney and Sir Bernard Spilsbury unanimously confirmed that Leia had been murdered. But by who? Several suspects were ruled out of the investigation. Robert Smith, Leia's husband, who hadn't seen her since she had left him, was seen by several witnesses in the seaside town of Margate. Her mother Kathleen, a known fraudster, stayed the whole night at a friend's house on Percy Street. Gordon Bodley, her wayward father, was tracked down but wasn't in London that week. And her ex-lovers and known ponces, Jim Rich, William Billy Sullivan and George Day, were all in prison at the time of the murder. The last sightings of Leia held a few likely suspects. Leia Cohen saw her at 10.50pm on Old Compton Street and stated she was scared of a man. He was jealous as she was living with someone else. But when investigated, this turned out to be Billy Sullivan. Ruby Walker stated, At 11.30pm, I met Leia on the corner of Alcompton Street. A Greek came up and tried to get off with her. Only she rejected him as they had previously had a dispute over money. Being local, he was later identified and ruled out. At 12.30am, Emilio Plantino, 
Hall Porter at the London Casino on Orcompton Street. Saw Leia proceeding on the south side of the street with a man. Described as 30 years old, 5 foot 7 inches tall, fair complexion, brown brushback hair, slim build, in a dark raincoat and no hat. Confirmed by Nellie Few. She saw Leia enter 66 Old Compton Street with a man. And her description is close to Emilio's. Aged about 25, 5 foot 5 inches tall, medium build, fresh complexion, brown hair, clean shaven, a long black coat and no hat. Described as reliable witnesses, both Nellie and Emilio were shown photos of known persons of interest by the police, including any potential suspects, but they failed to identify the person they had seen. For the detectives, whoever is responsible for the murder, undoubtedly accompanied the prostitute to her room ostensibly for the purposes of sexual intercourse. This theory is supported by the position of the body. It is also reasonable to assume that the robbery was the motive as a handbag was found open and no money in the room. It is also very improbable that she would have consented to prepare herself for sexual intercourse without first receiving payment which was a logical theory. Careful consideration has been given to the possibility of the murder being one of revenge on the part of a Ponce. But if such were the case, one would have expected to find evidence of a row or disorder. Assuming the assailant would have had prior convictions, the police commissioner requested all local and county divisions to investigate anyone with a history of violence against women and or prostitutes, who also resembled the suspect. With 103 men later questioned, they all had alibis, some weren't in London, many were in prison, and when visually compared, most of the men did not match the suspect. But which suspect? Stanley King was the most logical suspect. A jealous boyfriend with a tenuous alibi and timings which could not be categorically verified by others. But with the evidence against him being circumstantial, the police report states, The deceased was last seen alive, entering 66 Old Compton Street with a man who in all probability was responsible for her death. It is possible she met a further man, but despite exhaustive inquiries of those known to frequent the area, no one saw her after this time. Once again, a Soho prostitute had been strangled in her own bed by an unknown assailant. And having questioned hundreds of witnesses and suspects, for a third time, the investigation hit a brick wall. 
The police report would conclude, It is most unfortunate that we have to admit defeat in our investigation into this case. Following so quickly on from the undetected murders of Josephine Martin and Jean-Marie Cousins. There is nothing to show, however, that there is a connection between any of these cases. Despite the most exhaustive inquiries, no evidence could be found on which even suspicion could be attached to any known person. And it is unlikely that these crimes will ever be solved. On Tuesday the 9th of June 1936, coinciding with the delayed inquest of Jean-Marie Cotton, the death of Constance May Hind was concluded at Westminster Coroner's Court. With witnesses called, evidence examined, and suspects questioned. Although Leia's mother and uncle openly blamed her boyfriend, nothing concrete could prove that Stanley King had anything to do with the murder of Dutch Leia. Wrapped up the same day, the coroner, Mr. Ingleby Oddie, would state of both women's deaths, there is no doubt that she has been murdered by persons or persons unknown as he had with French Fifi. Again, another murder had gone unsolved. With the inquest concluded and the case closed, no further details would furnish the newspaper's front pages, as the press feverishly tried to piece together the clues as to which lone killer had strangled three women in a spree across Soho's red light district. The murders of Fifi, Marie and Leia would easily have been forgotten. But with the killer described by the coroner as a homicidal maniac, as if recalling the terrifying days of Jack the Ripper, that was all that was needed to fan the flames of conspiracy, suspicion, and panic. The Daily Mirror went with, Soho is scared. A fourth woman strangled in a Soho flat, which was untrue, and it left the police trying to quell the public's fears. The Sunday pictorial headlined with, Dutch Leia feared murder. She always prophesied that she would not die a natural death. And although this did not appear in any statement, it ran rampant as a fact. The mirror ran with Maniac's three Soho women victims. Girls' friends fear to talk. Stating, it may be our turn next. Even though not a single sex worker questioned spoke of being afraid. And some articles, such as Every Week, even created their own facts, as if the case wasn't salacious enough. Stating of Dutch Leia, the woman's tongue was badly mutilated. This deliberate mutilation is a serious warning to Soho 
This woman talked too much. Take heed, lest you get the same dose. It was all lies. But if you print it, it becomes fact. And the more you repeat it, it becomes proof. Throughout, the press repeatedly made reference to a strangler in Soho, a strangler gang, and even Soho's serial strangler. But it wasn't until the 23rd of May 1936, two weeks after Leia's death, that in connection to a fourth alleged strangling of a Soho prostitute called Dorothy Raphael, for whom no police or incident record exists, the evening dispatch would first use the words The Soho Strangler and the name stuck. Like the unknown maniac who once stalked Whitechapel, Soho's very own killer was given a name. But by mythologizing a man and making him into a monster, Again, the victims would be forgotten. Everybody loves a villain, and Jack the Ripper is possibly the most infamous. Almost 140 years since his killing spree, Jack has morphed from a mere man with either mental health issues or a maniacal bent into a monster with godlike status who outwitted the police with his cunning, who had a surgeon's skill, who as a moral guardian cleaned up the city of disease-rattled whores, who was possibly a genius painter, and who evaded capture as he had friends in high places, as high up as the Queen. It makes for a fascinating tale but lacking any credible evidence is most probably bollocks. The truth is, Jack the Ripper attacked lone, hungry, vulnerable women in the dark, and then he fled. In short, he was a coward. But no one buys books about cowards, and it's even harder to worship a weakling. The same is true of most serial killers. We know their names, but rarely their victims. Disregard it as mere props for his pleasure, or pieces of meat simply to be hacked to bits. The way we make a monster more palatable for a moral eye is by dismissing the victims until all that remains of them is their name, age, and injuries. Examine any newspaper about the murder of Constance May Hind, and the same formula is repeated. The first paragraph is an overview of the crime. The subtext of the second paragraph is why it is acceptable that she was murdered. And the third paragraph and beyond is the mythology of the killer. 
as their only source of information, not all of which was true. The public were informed not to mourn her passing, as her murder was clearly preceded by her own life choices and moral transgressions. Leia was an outsider, as along with Fifi and Marie, she was described as living a bohemian lifestyle. With never an example to prove this, just that she was living among undesirables. Next up to be critiqued was her name, her many aliases, like Leia Smith, Leia Hines, Constance May Hind, and May Constance Smith, to name but a few. Most of which were legitimate, but whiffed of criminality and with the repeated use of her street name of Dutch Leia. This was there to remind us that she was a prostitute. Often, the headlines heralded her as a young pretty brunette, as if it was her fault that her looks had led a killer to take her life. And yet, had she been fat, old and ugly, the implication is he wouldn't have bothered. As with Fifi and Marie, many articles referenced that they were French, but also Russian and Jewish, with it all written in bold capital letters to play on this post-World War I xenophobia even further. And even though she was English-born and bred, many state Leia Heinz is of German extraction. Never once would they mention her tough upbringing, only her dubious life and her criminal record. So when this dead girl was found sprawled on her bed, with her body described as partially clothed, in a state of undress, and just in her underwear, the fault was not laid at her killer, but at her. Basically, the prostitute known as Dutch Leia was someone we should never mourn. In the eyes of the readers, she died cruelly because of the world she inhabited. Soho, a sinister place of foreigners, a seedy cesspit of vice, a plague of undesirables, and a den of the criminal underworld. As with Whitechapel in the 1880s, Soho in the 1930s reflected our socio-political anxieties, and the Soho Strangler embodied the public's fears. By 1936, still reeling from the First World War, with Hitler violating the Treaty of Versailles by remilitarizing the Rhineland, Mussolini invading Abyssinia, and Nazi Germany and fascist Italy forming the Rome-Berlin axis. A second world war was already being mooted. With talk of communists, fascists, Nazis and swarms of aliens upon our shores. Just as Jack the Ripper was a villain who embodied their fears, the Soho Strangler reflected ours a society blamed the usual band of undesirables, such as foreigners, gays, Jews, 
bohemians, the insane, and the disabled. In all likelihood, the Soho Strangler was merely a man. But being afraid that this man was one of us, the press made him a monster who was one of them. The police's prime suspect in the murder of Dutch Leia was the man seen with her by Emilio Plantino and Nelly Few. Their combined statements describe him as aged 25 to 30, 5 foot 5 to 5 foot 7 inches high, slim to medium build, fresh complexion, clean shaven, brown brushback hair, a long black coat and no hat. That could be her killer. The problem is, it matches the average male in the 1930s. As descriptions go, it's ordinary and unremarkable. But when readers slather over a blood-splattered story about a homicidal maniac, they don't want the killer to be just a man. They want a monster. It took the tinkering of hundreds of tiny details to transform the Soho Strangler from a possible punter last seen walking along Old Compton Street with Leia to become a predatory serial killer of Soho sex workers who baffled Scotland Yard and strikes with an insane but deadly cunning. To many, the changes were barely noticeable the Liverpool Echo wrote, He is believed to be an artist or a foreigner. This is unknown, but it fits with the idea that a bohemian would kill his own kind. And more bizarrely, the Daily Herald stated, He was coloured or Greek, which neither witness said. Within the day, other newspapers had adapted the same description as issued by the police. But with a few subtle changes to make this man more monstrous. Suddenly, he had long hair, a thin face, a dark grey cap, and with hair growing out of the nape of his neck. As he walks with a slouch, this deformed beast would stalk Soho with an ape-like gait. It took almost no time to make him real but fictional. One of them, but not one of us. This was emphasized even further, as with the killer prowling known haunts, as the press would call them, it was almost as if he was a ghoul opposed to a guy. And stating, police were searching all lodging houses and second-class boarding houses. It was clear that the killer should never be middle or upper class, but utter scum. And with the constant repetition of how he vanished rather than fled, how he disappeared rather than ran away like a coward, and how he evaded capture 
rather than walked into a busy street, which was full of strangers minding their own business. Even his movements became mythic. Keen to play on the recurring theme, which had embedded into local and national papers in the years before the Soho Strangler killings. The Sunday Dispatch and the Daily Independent exclaimed that the case would be cracked, as detectives were convinced that there is a crime king in Soho, who knows all the secrets and the culprits. With all three murders, French Fifi, Marie Cotton and Dutch Leia linked without question. It was said that all three women had connections to the white slave trade. It all began with Josephine Martin, alias French Fifi, found dead in her Archer Street flat, strangled with one of her own silk stockings, who was said to have acted at various times as an agent for white slave traders and for peddlers of coke. Which the Sunday pictorial confirmed to its eager readership, hungry for new facts and ever more thrilling stories. It is believed by Scotland Yard to be a vendetta, which has already claimed three lives in a reign of terror against Soho's underworld. On the 12th of May, 1936, the Evening Dispatch used the headline Soho Strangler Gang, implying an extortion racket in the West End, where women were forced into marriages of convenience and shipped in and out of London or Paris to work as prostitutes to pay off an impossible bill to their pimps or ponces. With no evidence to link any of the murders to a criminal gang, a lone killer, or even their most likely suspects, the murders of French Fifi, Marie Cotton and Dutch Leia, were reluctantly closed. As the national and international press drooled over three unsolved murders, an incompetent police force, a city suburb in terror, and a killer with a very quotable nickname. Just like the media sensation 50 years earlier, which was Jack the Ripper, they bade for more blood, and with it, more murders. But with an odd eerie silence descending over Soho, although they still spoke of panic gripping Soho, another girl found dead, and most bizarrely, the Soho Strangler Court. As the killing stopped, so did the reader's attention. And with the press looking elsewhere for news, the Soho Strangler was forgotten. On the 13th of September 1936, Every Week posted a full-page article syndicated across the world, which read, The Soho Strangler Who Baffled Scotland Yard. It filled the space, but by the next day, it was being used as chip paper. In the late 1940s, 
the breast dangled the same carrot above the Soho Strangler striking again. As four more prostitutes were murdered, all within streets of each other. Ginger A, Russian Dora, Margaret Cook and Black Rita. But this time, the public didn't bite. The case may never be solved. As with the police having exhausted every avenue of investigation, and the press having manipulated the sightings of the suspect, to such an extent that every witness after its publication gave an identically false story, including Stanley King. The mythologizing of the monster and the demonizing of his victims has turned three murders into nothing but a gory story for the sake of our entertainment. More than 80 years on, the truth about the Soho Strangler may be lost forever. And yet, the press did leave us a very real suspect. A Jew known only as Mr. Cohen. Part 7 of 10 of the Soho Strangler continues next week. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Dear boss, I keep hearing the police have caught me. That joke about Leather Apron gave me real fits. 
I'm down on whores, and I shan't quit ripping them till I do get buckled. Grand work that last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. The infamous Dear Boss letter, which gave Whitechapel's infamous spree killer a name, is largely thought to be a hoax, concocted by two journalists of the Star newspaper to keep a dying story alive. As with the Soho Strangler, by mangling the facts, so a mere man now morphed into a monster, their meddling had distracted the public, the rest of the press, and even the police from finding the culprit. In truth, neither killer left any clues to their identity, with no fingerprints, no witnesses, and baffled police suggesting a smattering of suspects, possibly as convenient scapegoats. With the inquests of French Fifi, Marie Codden and Dutch Lair, concluding that they were murdered by persons unknown, the cases were closed. The killer went silent, and with no news to report, a restless press moved on. But who was the Soho Strangler? A man, a myth or a monster? A bohemian, a gay or a Jew? And with a taste for petite French brunettes, was a fourth victim in his sights. The police thought he was a man, possibly a punter, with a past of violence against women. Whereas the press had alluded to a suspect. Described as a gangster, a ponce, a vice king, a dope peddler, a white slaver, and said to be the most feared man in the London underworld. They never gave a name to this crime boss, but as a criminal who could kill at will, exuded an aura of fear, and had the power to corrupt, making the police look away and the press pose a cunning distraction to the public. He was a real strangler in Soho. As a man, a myth and a monster, Max Le Rocan, also known by those who dared to speak his name as Max the Red, Red Max and Russian Max, went by many aliases. Some we know, most we don't, as he assumed new names and identities to disguise his many crimes. With his extensive criminal record listing him as Kemfesti, Kassenborg, Cassell, Emile Allard, Max Allard, and known locally as Mr. Cohen. Using a multitude of aliases and forged documents in multiple countries, his true history is a mystery. Born on either the 3rd or 5th of December 1879, Maya Cassell, known as Max, was one of at least two sons to Hermen or Hyman and Mina Cassell, Russian Jews living in Riga, now the capital of Latvia. 
being barely five foot five, but weighing in at a hefty 16 stone. Max was physically imposing. And as the police report declared, he had enormous strength and was greatly feared by those who knew him. With piercing brown eyes and fair red hair, Max the Ginger, as he was also known, exuded a real charm when he wanted to. But with his face and body a patchwork of past wounds, a broken nose, lost teeth, and his left cheek and neck slashed in a knife fight, there was no denying that Max was dangerous. Barking in a gruff, menacing growl, those who openly spoke against him stated he was a violent bully, offensive and arrogant, and a quick-tempered, selfish thug, who attacked the meek with impunity, who stalked the streets unreproached, and being fast with a ligature and his fists, he often spat mocking barbs, laughing as his terrified victim was strangled into submission. No one knows when or why he left Riga, but in 1901, as a well-dressed, respectable Jewish boy with an honest trade, 20-year-old Max was running a bootmaker's in the Paris suburb of Rue Pigali. It was a decent business, which made a little money, paid its bills, and drew no attention from the authorities. But that was the point. As using an alias, this little shoe shop was a front to hide his real income. Sex. Rue Pigali was Paris's red light district, the French Soho or Whitechapel, where cruel men like Max pimped out barely pubescent girls, selling their virginity to seedy strangers for a fee they would never see. Whether he sold her is unknown, but one girl pimped out in Pigali would be later known in Soho as French Fifi. But with pimping being precarious, having been arrested on several charges of larceny, dope dealing, running a brothel, living off of moral earnings, and the assault of his girls, as he would call them, known in the trade as the meat. In October 1903, under the alias of Kempfesti, Max was deported from France. For any honest individual, this banishment would be crippling. But by adopting a new alias, Max simply started again. From 1905, he ran a cafe in the Belgian city of Antwerp as a front for his ever-expanding stranglehold on the white slave trade. Until 1914, when he was prosecuted but ultimately dismissed owing to a lack of evidence and was expelled for inciting minors into debauchery. Max did not care about the meat he sold, even though 
with the age of consent being just 13. Some of his girls were only children. Fueled by money, power and arrogance, Max travelled wherever he pleased. And having established a network of brothels in Buenos Aires, Antwerp, Paris, Montreal and London, he shipped a fresh slew of pretty young girls to distant cities. As even to English punters, French girls have a taste of the exotic. Exported like cattle to a strange new land, a wonderful dream would be dangled before every girl. She would be hastily married to make deportation impossible, stripped of her passport and then sold into the sex trade. Isolated, threatened, beaten, and living in fear, they would be indebted for life to their pimps and ponces, serving a never-ending procession of drunk and violent men, until as unloved and middle-aged spinsters, with debts, criminal records, and possible addictions, they were physically and mentally spent. In 1914, Max was shipping girls between almost every continent, including Australia. Having acquired a French-Canadian passport under the alias of Emile Allard, with his cover as a West End jeweler. As with many elements of criminality, it is said, but unprovable, that Max ran the Iron Gang. A feared group of pimps, extorters and white slavers in Soho until 1925 when they were all charged with running a bogus marriage scheme for the purposes of prostitution. With one witness described as a prostitute and an informer, four men were deported, but Max was neither convicted nor charged. In 1933, Three years before the murders, Max Cassell, alias Emile Allard, a well-dressed man in a sharp suit, a trilby hat, gold rings and cufflinks, who carried a magnifying glass as he sold jewellery, having bought it first from Debenhams, had moved into a very modest first-floor flat at 37 James Street in Marleybone, where he lived alone with his white Highland Terrier. He was so anonymous, it was almost as if he didn't exist. With his wealth hidden, his identity unknown, and his businesses seemingly legit. When the police were hunting Leia's killer, one of the reasons Red Max didn't appear on their list is that he didn't have a criminal conviction in England. As a crime boss in Soho, Max had the ability to be powerful and yet invisible. By May 1936, three petite brunettes of similar circumstances were strangled in their Soho flats 
by an unseen assailant. The police would state, There is nothing to show that there is a connection between any of these cases. Despite the most exhaustive inquiries, no evidence was found upon which suspicion could be attached to any known person, and it is unlikely that these crimes will ever be solved. In the hunt for the killer, the police searched far and wide. And yet not once, in any of the police files, does Red Max appear as a suspect. Three streets southeast of Lexington Street, where Jean-Marie Cotton once lived. Two streets south of Old Compton Street and Archer Street, where French Fifi and Dutch Lay applied their trades. And over Shaftesbury Avenue, in an area now called Chinatown, lived a sex worker called French Suzette. Born in Paris, on an unspecified date in 1910, Suzanne Boudin came from very little and sought what was said to be a better life in England. As a pretty young brunette, with a girl-like frame, a dark bob, and rosebud lips, sex work was an obvious choice for an unskilled woman who could lure in lustful men. In 1924, at the tender age of just 14, Suzanne married Emile Bertrand, a violin maker, and together they had a daughter called Lucette. Little is known of their married life, but already working as a prostitute, it was said that Suzanne had abandoned them, fleeing to England and leaving a husband and child. Like many pieces of meat, shipped into Soho's red light district. On the 18th of March, 1933, Suzanne married John Naylor, a man she had never met before, and having been paid two pounds for his time. After a few months of married life, they later split, leaving Mrs. Naylor with a passport and immunity from deportation. French Suzette had many convictions for prostitution. But unlike the others, she lived in relative luxury. Many prostitutes were flat-farmed, as were the law decreeing that a brothel consisted of two or more prostitutes living or working in a single dwelling. The solution was simple. A series of flats subdivided into smaller lodgings by a partition, with a bed and a hot plate installed to add an air of respectability. Just like French Fifi's flat on Archer Street, although who actually owned that house will never be known. In contrast, 35 to 36 Little Newport Street 
was a spacious four-story maisonette covering two floors, which was furnished with artwork, soft furnishings, an electric massager, and a portable gramophone. Always dressed in fine furs, expensive cosmetics, and Parisian perfumes. Although she still had sex with men for money, her clients were exclusive, her prices were high, and her life was easier than most. Being the mistress of Roger Vernon, an infamous white slaver, and now a bitter rival of Red Max. What's most baffling about the Soho Strangler killings is the lack of motive. Every murder has a motive, whether robbery or revenge, pride or politics, insanity or mistaken identity, bloodlust or sexual urges. These murders had none of that. Each death was silent and swift. Each crime scene was untouched and clean. And each corpse, in two cases, were mistaken for something innocent. With layers either being personal or having not used a stocking, the flat iron only became essential to silence her. These three crimes could have been a coincidence, a cock-up, or controlled by someone with power. On the night of Sunday the 3rd of November 1935, French Fifi willingly invited her assailant into her Archer Street flat. And it's likely that she made him a cup of tea and maybe a plate of eggs. In the bedroom, no sexual assault took place. But in an action described by her friends as odd, she calmly removed only her left stocking, in which she kept her money, which went missing. But did he take it, or was he owed it? And having cleared her debt, did this man, who felt that he owned her, close her account with her death? A few weeks before her murder, her neighbour, Millicent Warren, heard Fifi argue and struggle with a foreign man in her flat, who Fifi later said, got hold of my throat. Who this man was is unknown. It may seem strange for a murder to be mistaken for a suicide by such experienced detectives, a doctor and a pathologist. But it was. At the crime scene, they found no fingerprints to pinpoint to a suspect. But maybe he wore gloves. No witnesses were spotted. But possibly they were too scared to speak. By her bed were letters suggesting a suicidal depression. Or maybe this scene was staged. And with her autopsy taking three weeks to come to the conclusion of murder 
based on probability. Were these professionals simply trying to get to the truth without jumping to a hasty conclusion? Or was the delay deliberate? The Daily Herald would later state, For the police to allow such a time to elapse between the body's discovery and the cause of death being announced is almost without parallel. What we do know of the culprit is that having rendered her semi-conscious and shattered her dental plate with a single punch, that he was a big man, strong and violent, who could charm and control her. On Thursday the 16th of April 1936, the body of 43-year-old French national Jean-Marie Cotton was found strangled in her flat. Again, with no fingerprints, clues or witnesses. The police collared a gay lodger who had soiled a mattress. But with the evidence described as purely circumstantial, James Allen Hall was dismissed. The investigation described Marie Cotton as a woman of good character and there was no evidence to suggest that at any time she'd been a prostitute. And yet she had possible links to the sex trade. Her lodger Dorothy Neary was a prostitute. She was married briefly to an Englishman which sealed her British citizenship. She lived on a known thoroughfare occupied by sex workers. Her boyfriend, Carlo, reputedly paid her for sex. And it was said, just days before her death, that he had accused her of having a ponce. Marie Cotton only spoke to her closest friends about her fear of the Jew. An unidentified man who helped her out in the past, who was reclaiming a debt whose surname she had only said once, possibly by mistake, and whose impending arrival had left her shaking with fear. On Tuesday the 14th of April 1936, just two days before her death, she left a note on her door which read, Mr. Cohen, shall not be long, gone to Marlborough Street, J. Lanza. That night, the mysterious Mr. Cohen failed to show up. With scant information, the police stated that finding him was an impossible task. And although Mr. Cohen was mentioned at the inquest, Red Max was not. Oddly, it was amidst the police's own papers that Mr. Cohen was listed as a known alias for Red Max. And yet he wasn't considered a suspect in Marie Cotton's murder. But why? <laughs> On 
on Saturday the 9th of May 1936. A few streets from both murders, Dutch Lair, a 24-year-old prostitute, was found strangled and bludgeoned to death in her own bed. Again, there were no fingerprints, suspects or clues. She wasn't French, but being a small brunette, maybe some of these details are coincidental. Links between Leia and Max are as scant as you would expect. When questioned, Ruby Walker stated, I don't know if Leia had been to France, or if someone had come from France to murder her. I knew Fifi, but I didn't know Max. I have never seen French Fifi or Leia Hines together. Even though they were both two pleasant prostitutes who had lived and worked just streets apart for the last six years. The links are tenuous. It's likely that Leia was flat farmed as her landlord had offered her another flat, having first threatened to evict her owing to non-payment of debts. It's likely that being a British prostitute, that Leia was killed for selling sex on a patch run by French ponces like Max. We know that Leia was married briefly, using aliases to Robert Smith. And in an odd connection, they held their wedding reception at number 5 Old Compton Street, the home of a French ponce, which the police file states, Red Max did frequent. And yet if Max was the last man seen with Leia, and whose description, age 25 to 30, slim to medium build, fresh complexion, brown hair, long black coat and no hat, was fed to every police force in the country and led the course of the investigation, why doesn't it match Max? Who is age 55, well-built, scarred complexion, with a mop of fair reddish hair, and was dressed in an expensive three-piece suit. Was this accurate? A mistake? Or was it deception, concocted by a corrupt police force, funded by a Soho crime boss, and aided by the press, who added their own monstrous flourishes? Was the aim to ensure that these murders would never be solved? and that the Soho Strangler would never be caught. Nineteen thirty-five and thirty-six saw the swift decline of Max's once great empire. With Maltese gangs like the Messina brothers and the Vassallo gang, muscling into the French-run sex trade. 55-year-old Max was far from the man he once was. Money was tight. Mr. Cohen was cracking down on debtors. And one week before the murder, Max had his finger sliced up in a knife fight in a Berwick Street cafe over a few quid. In Britain, Max had always maintained his duality, that of a seemingly legitimate West End jeweller to hide his illicit gains. 
which kept him free from police suspicion and even helped him evade deportation. When everyone but him in the Iron Gang was convicted back in 1925, he had no criminal conviction in this country. But following the arrest of an associate for the possession of a firearm, Max was put under surveillance and said to be a police informer in both London and Paris that Max had handed over his associates to save his own skin. It could be a coincidence, but the Daily Herald would state, French Fifi was believed to have given evidence which recently led to a sensational court case. Her real name, nor none of her aliases, appear as a witness in the reporting of that case. But then again, with this three-month trial, beginning on the 21st of November 1935, Fifi had been murdered just two weeks before. On Thursday the 23rd of January 1936, at about 6pm, Max left his modest flat at 37 James Street. With time's hard and his pride dented, even his nephew would state he did not appear to have much money. In Soho, he once ruled the roost. But being overweight, old and alone, his glory days had long since gone. To compound his shame, to raise his volcanic blood pressure, and to cause his thick, hairy fists to clench whenever this debt was mentioned. 18 months earlier, he was forced to go cap in hand to get a loan of 25 pounds, 1300 pounds today, from a white slaver who now ruled large swathes of Soho's sex trade. This man was a French pimp called Roger Vernon. With debt being called in, Max unable to pay, and Roger spreading word that this so-called kingpin didn't have two halfpennies to rub together. At 6.50pm, he rang the doorbell of 35 to 36 Little Newport Street. An elegant little lodging, occupied by one of Roger's prostitutes, who was also his mistress. A small petite brunette, known as French Suzette. With menace and possibly murder on his mind, Max didn't draw any attention as he waited for the door to open. He didn't wear a disguise, just a grey suit, a dark overcoat, a shirt and a tie. As the black street door opened, Max removed his hat, his face clearly visible to those in this busy market street, 
as he knew no one who valued their life would dare to speak his name. Even on a street full of traders, he could appear and vanish like a gust of wind floating on the breeze. In his pockets, he didn't carry a weapon. No gun, no knife, no ligature. As being a well-built brute who was handy with his fists, he could easily crush a man's neck with two hands and a woman's with just one. Opened by Marcella, the prostitute's maid. This trembling help led him up the narrow staircase, past the closed club, and to the private room above to meet with French Suzette. In total, the Soho Strangler would murder four women, although his motive would remain a mystery. But was Red Max this maniac? Did a corrupt police force hide his crimes? Did an eager press distract the public with his lies? Did this crime boss order the murders of French Fifi, Marie Cotton and Dutch Leia to usurp any rivals and erase any informers? Or was this as simple as a once great white slaver who had fallen on hard times and was recouping his debts and exacting revenge no matter how petty. Given enough power, money and control, surely it would take a criminal kingpin, someone like Max, to make a murder look like a suicide, to vanish any witness, to erase any evidence, to lead the police to collar a series of scapegoats, and to ensure that none of these murders ever went to criminal trial. Red Max, alias Mr. Cohen, is the most likely suspect to be the Soho Strangler. And yet he wasn't. Only this wasn't corruption, a deception, or incompetence by the police. As before Marie Cotton and Dutch Leia were even murdered, Red Max was already dead. Part 8 of 10 of The Soho Strangler continues next week. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.